0: Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. This week we're continuing our series on engaging culture. This time we're going to be focusing on engaging um, with Christians. Because inevitably, when you're speaking into controversial issues, um, inevitably you're going to have Christians that disagree with you. Right, That is going to happen. And so how do we deal with that? How do we do so in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Um, and so this week's episode is going to focus really on unity um, specifically. Okay, um, I'll say simply that how we engage with other believers, especially in a public matter, um, it really matters to God. All right, And there's so many verses about this. I picked one from Galatians 6. It says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. There is an expectation in the Bible that we are treating other believers, we're being very careful to treat other believers well, okay? Um, oftentimes in in church and in, in Christian circles, we just talk about, hey, we're supposed to be loving to everyone, right? We're supposed to be loving to everyone, we're supposed to be respectful to everyone. Um, we don't make a big distinction, but the Bible actually does make a distinction between the way that we're to treat people inside and outside the church, okay? A, a good example is, you know, in the early church, they took an offering um, for widows and orphans, um, but really there was an emphasis put on these were widows that were believers, right? That the church was to specifically provide for believers that were in financial distress, Okay. And um, I think in a lot of uh, churches, that concept of us caring for other believers um, can be lost because we're just talking about, hey, we're supposed to be loving people in general. But we should understand that God really does care about how we speak about and how we interact with other believers especially, okay? So, the first question is why? Why is unity so important um, to God? In fact, we're gonna see um, that it's very important to him. I I really like to point out the Lord's Prayer. Now, when most people think of the Lord's Prayer, you know, they think of like Matthew chapter six, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Right, and then he taught them, "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name," and that's a prayer that we recite often uh, in many places. But I think that you know that really would be better titled the disciples' prayer, right? Because that was the disciples teaching, you know, asking Jesus, "Teach us how to pray." And that's how he taught them. But in John 17, we see Jesus praying. Okay, and um, and this is really Jesus' prayer, right? In John 17 and he says my prayer is not for them alone speaking of his disciples I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message so he's speaking about us now right Um, that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and I am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me okay pause that's verse 21 that is such an important link that Jesus makes there right so Jesus prays that all the believers would be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me so he makes a clear link between the unity of believers and the effect that they're going to have on convincing the world that Jesus is sent by the father okay so it's Jesus who makes this link and this is this is super important right if we do not have unity, we will not have the ability to convince the world. All right? That is the logical link that Jesus is making here in John 17. He goes on. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay? So I want to talk about this link because... Jesus makes this link really clear in his prayer, okay? Father, make them one so that the world may know, right? And he talks about how if the love of God is within us such that we are modeling real love towards one another, okay, then the world will be able to see that there's something that's from God here, all right? In John 13, 35, he says this, By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, okay? If you love one another, they're going to know that you're my disciples, okay? This is how we're to be known, by our love for one another, all right? So Jesus is saying this is very important, and and I would agree. I think, um, you know, a lot of times we can focus on is our presentation good? You know, is the speaker a good speaker? Are the lights really well done? You know, we can focus on all these things that make good ministry. But at the end of the day, these are all side things. Okay, these are all minor hindrances or helps. Okay, these are not the main thing. We can have, I mean, I I would argue that in the American church, we do those things better than any other church in the world. Okay, our sound is on point. Okay, our speakers are the most you know, gifted and well-polished, our PowerPoint slides, (laughs) like everything is on point, okay? We're better at that aspect, Um, and yet the church has been dying in this past generation. We've been backsliding, and that's because these things are are minor details, okay? These things are minor details. The main thing is, uh, do we have the substance? And one of the things that Jesus points here is the love that we have for one another. That, that's part of the main substance, okay, that people outside the church need to see, all right? If they see Christians caring for one another in a way that is remarkable, that will move them, okay? That's what Jesus is saying here, okay? Our unity affects our witness, which is why there's so many scriptures about this. All right? 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Philippians two. complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay? Obviously, this is just a small piece, Okay? There's so many passages that talk about this. Um, I, I want to give an, an example of the alternative, okay? Um, what we see in the Corinthian church is that at some point, um, they start to sue one another, all right? And this is strongly rebuked by Paul, all right? This is 1 Corinthians 6. It says this, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment? Instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, how are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters... Do you ask for ruling from those whose way of life is scorn in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already." Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay? So this is Paul giving a very sharp and strong rebuke to the Corinthian church, okay? Because he hears reports that they're suing one another in court, all right? By the way, I've heard of stuff like this happening in church, in American churches, okay? This type of thing happens here and it is, it is a defeat, all right? It is a defeat. It Because what it is, it's a sign that we believers do not trust our own integrity, our own um, justice, such that we need to appeal to secular authorities, those outside the church to judge for us, right? Like, it... And, and, and Paul, he makes it clear here, right? It would be better to be cheated by another believer. It would be better, right? It's, it, it's because what you're showing, what you're showing is that to be cheated by another believer, I, I would rather demonstrate the immaturity and the lack of unity in the church, I would rather demonstrate that, that to unbelievers than lit myself, be cheated out of some sum of money, right? Be cheated out of some, you know, building or property, okay? And this is by, by far the most common type of lawsuit I've seen, right, is when churches fight and they split and then they're suing each other for property and stuff like that, okay? This is, it's a sign of how immature we are because it would be better, it'd be better to lose the property is what Paul's saying. Even if you're in the right, even if they really did cheat you, It'd be better because it would show that your treasure is not on this in this earth, right? The problem is when when we so, sue each other in court, what we're what we're telling the world is that we care about the same things they care about. We care about our property. We care about our money. It's so important to us that we're willing to take it to court. And Paul says, if that's the case, then you're already defeated. Okay. And it's hard. Like, uh, I, I get it. Okay. If you get wronged by another believer, like seriously wronged. it, it Dealing with that feeling of, of being unjustly wronged is really hard to deal with. I totally get it. Okay. But when you allow that unforgiveness, that bitterness, to grow to the place that you're you're willing to demean the entire church, right? You're 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 willing to show the weakness of Christ's church to the world. Then what it says is that your faith is is so small. And unfortunately, these are leaders in the church that are doing this. Okay, I want to speak in humility because I understand some people they they. You know, they work for a long time. They sacrifice a lot, you know, to build up, you know, their ministries and their churches. And It's just, to me, I don't, like, the Bible is so clear about this. I don't understand. The Bible is so clear about this. I don't understand how churches can sue other believers, how Christians can sue other believers. I really don't understand, you know. Wouldn't wouldn't we rather be wronged and receive the reward from God? Isn't isn't that what the Bible like clearly teaches? And ultimately this people don't understand what you're giving up when you do this, okay? What you're giving up when you show disunity to the world. I'm talking about even just like arguing with other believers in a nasty way, you know? What you're doing is you're showing the immaturity of the body of Christ. Okay? And you're showing the opposite. You're working against you're you're anti witnessing. <laughs> we talk about, you know, we should witness to others, you know, by sharing about Christ. Okay, when we when we flaunt division in the church, okay, what we're doing is we're anti witnessing. Alright. And unfortunately this is the thing that destroys the church more than any others, okay? I say this as, you know, as a pastor. I can tell you that uh, many Christians, if not if not most Christians, who no longer go to church, many of them will, uh, don't go to church because of fights that they've seen in the church, okay? Many of them don't go because they've seen Christians acting so unloving towards other Christians. And for many of them, it, it brought offense, it brought you know, disappointment, disillusionment. And, like, I get it, because it's so, like, um, there's a lot of stuff going on. And to be clear, every Christian, it's your responsibility to rid your heart of offense. Okay, you can't say, hey, when, when my church split and the pastors, you know, publicly yelled at each other, like, that just made me, you know, give up and stop following God. Right, we can't have that excuse. Like I, I get why we'd be tempted to do that. I absolutely do. We can't use that excuse. Okay, but the greater sin is on the leaders, right? The greater sin is on the leaders, who demonstrated such unloving character that it it brought shame upon the name of Christ, and it and it, it influenced many, right? And if that's happening to Christians, how much more so to non-believers they hear about these things, right? What am I saying? I mean, it should be the opposite, right? It should be, oh, my gosh, this church and this pastor, people were cussing at them, you know. people were slandering them, people were doing all this, but that, that pastor was not offended. He forgave them. He really showed a love um, that has to be from God right we're supposed to impress the world with our love and that that absolutely does happen and it can happen all right but that should be what we aspire to to do as leaders right because look at the end of the day we don't need the building okay we don't need the building all right we don't need the huge budget this is what i tell you know pastors all the time we don't need those things i'm going to get into it in, in, in a, a little bit later but these things are often um counterfeits. Alright, this is counterfeit blessing. All right? It, let me put it to you this way if you have a powerful, healthy church, a building, you, you can get many buildings. <laughs> okay? Alright. It's only when your church lacks power and authority and health and it's dying, then you're then you're like, oh my gosh, we can't lose our building too. Does that make sense? Like the the true blessing and the true power is far more important Okay, but when we lose track of what's really important, we start to value things that are not that important. Okay, and we need to understand the reason why unity is so important to the church is because in the place of unity, there's a commanded blessing. All right, this is Psalm 133. It says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head and running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. All right, I, I, what it's describing here, this idea of the oil running down the beard, okay? This oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, okay? Throughout Scripture, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Aaron's the high priest, all right? So the idea is that the oil from his anointing is running down, okay? And it's, and it's flowing on, the, on his whole body, Okay, and in this capacity, the high priest is representing the body of Christ. It's representing the people of God, right? And the oil flows down the head. And because the body is in unity, right, it flows to every part. The spirit flows throughout every part. For there the Lord commands the blessing, okay? And the big problem, the big temptation for us as as humans is that we are tempted to value human power more than God power. Okay, this is like, especially for us in the West, because we have so much human power. We're so wealthy. Okay, we have so much money that it becomes all about our buildings and our equipment and our salaries and and all these types of things. We think we need these things to be a great church because we compare ourselves with the churches that have more of those things and they look like they're blessed. But I want to lovingly say, like, it, that's not a lot of times how it is, especially in Scripture. Okay, look. In in the time of Jeremiah, there were many seemingly br- blessed religious people, okay? And Jeremiah did not seem like that, right? Jeremiah was the reject. Jeremiah was the, the crazy preacher, all right, who got thrown in jail, all right? Jeremiah did not seem blessed, but he was the hero of that era. And we could be tempted to look at ministries... And churches and people that have all the money and all the influence and all this kind of stuff but it it is it is foolishness to judge those things as being evidence of God's favor that's not what we see in Scripture it really is not okay John the Baptist had great influence and then when Christ came his influence really started to diminish is that because he did something wrong No, it's because he did exactly what he was supposed to do. And then what happens to him? Then he goes to prison for saying what's right, and then he's martyred, he's killed. It goes about as bad as it possibly could for John the Baptist because he did what was right, and he'll be eternally glorified for it. And by the way, that's what happened to Jesus, right? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he blows up. He's huge, okay? For three years, he has a humongous ministry, Right? but he offends many people over the course of his ministry, and then eventually he's rejected, and he's crucified and he's killed. It doesn't turn out the way that his disciples had hoped it would. That's because in the kingdom, you cannot judge by the outward appearance, but this is our temptation, okay? We are, we are tempted to focus on the excellence of our ministries, and this is, this is what lots of, of pastors and leaders do, right? Like, like, God's given me a vision to reach this city Well, how are you going to reach the city? We, you know, we're going to, you know, send out 30 people to evangelize, right? We're sending them to the the highways and the byways to feed the lost and the oppressed. (laughs) (laughs) We make it sound really dramatic, you know, all the stuff that we're doing. We're feeding 500 people a week at our mission and, you know, and and to be clear, these are all great things, okay? None of those things are bad. The bad thing... Is this areas where it's like my ministry? God's called me, right, to do it. Right. And we're gonna transform the city. God's gonna use us to transform the region. And it's like, come on. Come on. <laughs> it, it's it's not that it's not that God can't use your ministry. It's that do you think he just wants to use your ministry? Yeah. Like, are you the focal point of God's plan on the earth, okay? Now, I don't know any pastor that would say yes to that question. I am the focal point. <laughs> God's, God's plan for Los Angeles hinges on me, <laughs> Like, I don't think most pastors would say that, right? Of course not, okay? But in the way that we operate, that's often how we meaning the hope for the region is not your ministry becoming amazing, okay? That's not the hope for the region, all right? The hope for the region is that there would be an outpouring of the Spirit on the people of God, okay? That's the hope, all right? And it, it, it is an arrogance when we focus on our ministry to the exclusion of others, meaning we think our ministry becoming great is the hope as opposed to the body of Christ receiving an outpouring of the spirit of revival. Okay. In my mind, that is a huge mistake. And I, I want to, you know, I'm kind of caricaturing it a little bit here. I, I, I want to give some understanding of why this happens because you can't control others. You can control yourself, right? If you're a Christian leader, I can't control what's going on in those other ministries. And if I if I pin my hope on them doing what's right, then that's going to just lead to frustration to me, and it's going to maybe maybe I'll become controlling. There's lots of bad things that happen, and I can get that right. Hey, God has given me stewardship over this area, okay, and so I am going to focus my efforts on that. That's actually a healthy mentality, right? That's a healthy mentality to be like, hey, I can't control others. I'm going to focus on what God's called me to do in the role that he's called me to play in what he's doing. That's healthy, okay? The thing that I'm, I'm warning about, though, is we can go from that healthy place to, well, I don't care what those people are doing. I care about what God's doing here, and he's doing all this amazing stuff. And what happens is we are our, our pride can get to a place where we start to mistreat parts of the other body of Christ. We don't honor them as we should. We actually contribute to division because we've written them off in our hearts. We don't even think about them anymore, and now it's, 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 it's all on us. Does this make sense, okay? Um, and this isn't obviously just for leaders, okay? This is for everyone, right? Because we all have our own places of, of influence, right? We have our own places of responsibility. Like maybe you're the small group leader or Bible study leader or worship leader or whatever, right? You've got your own place. And, and obviously, you should have a dream for that. And, and we want to grow and we want to be more fruitful. That's all good, okay? Those are all very good things, all right? but you and your ministry aren't going to shift the nation. Okay? You and your ministry are not going to get shift the nation. Now, God might use you to help shift the nation, all right? But the point is it's it's always bigger than just us and a healthy mentality is one where we recognize we need one another, all right? This is Paul's point. If we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, okay? A lot of people know 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as the spiritual gifts passage, all right? But Paul's main point about the spiritual gifts is really unity, okay? His point is that the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, all right? A person who's gifted in one way by God cannot say to a person who's gifted in another way, I don't really need you, because all the parts of the body need one another. That's his point, okay? That is 1 Corinthians 12 in a nutshell, all right? So the hope of the church is not that I'm going to be such a great hand that I'm like the hand can do everything. <laughs> you guys don't know how amazing this hand could be, right? Like, the hand can walk. <laughs> the hand, the hand can kind of see. <laughs> like, like, but a lot of people like that. Like, we want to try and do it all ourselves. Like, I can figure it out myself. And it's like, no, you can't. You're not gifted like that. That we need the entire body, okay? The body of Christ, okay? I'm, and to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying that we need everybody who calls himself a Christian. <laughs> to do the exact right thing in order, you know, for the the nation to be changed or the city to be changed. I'm not saying that, okay? But what I am simply saying is that we have to have a paradigm where we need the power of God. What's missing in, you know, in our mission is not that I need a bigger budget and I need, you know, better leaders here and I need whatever it might be, whatever your church or your ministry is lacking, okay? No, we need the outpouring of the Spirit, right? If we get the outpouring of the Spirit, then what will happen is we'll have a much greater impact and this is this is why I think revival history is so important for every believer every believer should study revival should have a paradigm of revival because revivals are what bring massive change okay it turns back the tide all right, we, you can have a hundred years of falling into sin and backsliding from the Lord in a nation, and then in a revival, boom, it could break out and turn back a hundred years of backsliding. Okay, that's the the potential power. I'm not saying revival is everything. I am saying though, it's a major component of what it is that we're supposed to be doing. All right, is seeking after revival, and what we ha- what we need to know about revival is that major revivals are almost always started by movements of holiness and unity. Okay? They're almost always start with movements of holiness and unity. Like these are priorities. Okay? By the way, it's very biblical. Alright. Acts four, thirty two. So this is in the in the first century. Okay? Jesus has ascended back to heaven. The disciples, right, they they gather together in the upper room and they pray and then there's an outpouring of the spirit and then all this amazing stuff happens okay all this amazing stuff happens but it talks about how they were of one heart and one mind in acts 432 it says now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common that is incredible right that that what they're saying is that there wasn't, they weren't driven by selfishness. In fact, they'd come to a place of voluntary communism. <laughs> that's what I say, like communism. Communism is evil when it's forced, right? Because it's the same thing. That's, that's man trying to do something that only God can do. And when you try and force it, it, it goes bad, all right? But the vision of communism, that's actually a biblical vision, right? The, w- voluntary communism, that's just called the kingdom of God. That's one of the components, one of the aspects of the kingdom of God, right, is that you're not so consumed with yourself, right, but you have a family and you live in, you know, in community with the family where you share and and everything, right, and that's all voluntary, okay, and that's what it was in the early church, okay, and that's because you have times of revival and they require certain characteristics, and the two huge characteristics are unity and holiness, Okay, I, I often say that um, you know revivals start with moves of prayer, prayer movements because prayer movement is the same thing. It's it's us unifying in our in setting ourselves apart for God, right? And crying out to Him, and that is that's that's the same thing. It's it's unity, and then it's holiness, right? We're setting ourselves apart. But we're crying out for more of God okay generally speaking in revival movements you see those two things happening so i'm going to give a couple historical examples okay first the 18th century moravians okay this is in germany and um in 1722 this is um copied from wikipedia okay 1722 protestant refugees established a new village called hernhut about two miles from berzeldorf okay the town initially grew steadily but major religious disagreements emerged and by 1727, the community was divided into warring factions. And just to give a little more context, it's because you had Catholics and Protestants, and there was a lot of fights over Catholics and Protestants. Okay, this that was a huge dividing line in those times. Okay. And it goes on. On, on, on the 13th of August, 1727, the community underwent a dramatic transformation when the inhabitants of Hern Hut, quote, learned to love one another. Unquote. Following an experience which they attributed to a visitation of the Holy Spirit similar to that recorded in the Bible on the day of Pentecost, what happened at Hearn Hut is they had a, a a revival that poured out grace for reconciliation and unity, okay It was a huge unity movement. the spirit of the Lord moved on their hearts right, and they unified and what came out of that okay so Hearn Hut grew rapidly following this transforming revival and became the center of a major movement for Christian renewal and mission during the 18th century. Okay. Moravian historians identify the main achievements of this period as number one, establishing a prayer watch of continuous prayer, which ran uninterrupted 24 hours a day for a hundred years. Okay. The IHOP people love talking about the Moravians, right? Because they were kind of the, the precursors, right? The predecessors, what they did was they started a prayer meeting where they had two people praying at all times, 24-7, and that went 100 years. <laughs> it's crazy, right? That is, that is incredible. But what happened is that, that prayer movement, it birthed a missions movement, okay? Um, they sent out hundreds of Christian missionaries to many parts of the world, including the Caribbean, North and South America, the Arctic. Man, I wonder who got that assignment. <laughs> to go to the Arctic. Africa and the Far East. The Moravian missionaries were the first large-scale Protestant missionary movement. Okay, so the Moravians really serve as a phenomenal example. They had a huge impact in in the Americas and the early American um, religious life. They had a huge impact on guys like um, the revivalists, like the Wesleys, were highly influenced by the Moravians. Okay, and it it happened because of a movement of reconciliation and unity result, and then they got moved to pray, and that drove their grace for missions. Okay, that's how this works. Unity, holiness and prayer, effective mission, okay? That's what we're going to see time and time again. I'm going to give an, a second example here. The Korean revival in Pyongyang, okay? So this is part of the early Pentecostal revivals in the early 20th century, okay? It says this, the evening meetings began on the Saturday the 6th and 1,500 people attended. Blair, who is, I believe, one of the missionaries there, he preached on 1 Corinthians 12:27. Members of the body of Christ and, exe- and exhorted those present to get right with one another. His discord in the church was like sickness in the body. That's a quote, okay? Fascinating. I didn't even realize this, but he used 1 Corinthians 12, <laughs> right? Which is really about spiritual gifts and unity. That the point is unity right? After the sermon, a number with, quote, a number with sorrow confessed their lack of love for others, especially for the Japanese. And, quote, many testified to a new realization of what sin was. Okay, so what happens is many people get convicted of their unloving hearts for others. And there's amazing testimonies, you know, from this. In fact, some of the missionaries, um, repented because they realized they didn't love the Korean people. They they repented of racism in their hearts for the Korean for Korean people, right? And then many of the Korean leaders were repenting of their jealousy towards other Korean leaders and of their their racism for Japanese. You know, and you know this is, uh, you know, they were oppressed by the Japanese. Okay, many Koreans, so they had good reason, um, in the natural to be. Filled with hatred towards the Japanese, but this is the power of God, right? Where the love of God brings breakthrough to forgive and to reconcile, to recognize the evil of our own jealousy and anger and resentment and all this kind of stuff, and it, it's a breakthrough in unity, and that's what opened the floodgates for everything else. And then, after that, what you see in the Korean Revival is you see public confession of sin, mass repentance, and then a mass prayer. Where everybody's praying at the same time and repenting, and it's powerful. So, one of the testimonies, Elder Sunju Kil of the Central Presbyterian Church, confessed his sin of Aiken in front of fifteen hundred people, and thus the revival began. Okay, so his his sin that he confessed to is that he had promised a dying man to look after his estate because his wife was unable to, but in the process he had taken one hundred dollars for himself, and the next day he gave the money back. Okay, so this this movement of unity like unleashes right this prayer and this holiness where people are repenting for sins um, in their lives and. And that releases this incredible revival. And if you know some of the history of this period, um, Pyongyang, which is, you know, the capital of North, what's now North Korea, um, it, it, the revival hit so hard that it became, called, it, it was called the Jerusalem of the East because <laughs> there, there was so much Christian activity. They sent out tons of missionaries, right? Um, amazing, amazing revival. And, you know, I'm half Korean, so uh, my Korean roots come back from here, Okay. The reason why I'm Christian today is in some part because of this revival and what happened there, okay? Um, and again, it started with a unity, a move of the Spirit towards unity, okay? So now, uh, we, when we're talking about unity, okay, we know it's important, but the question here is, but practically speaking, where do we draw the lines? Because well, we don't want to have unity with everyone who calls themselves believers, right? Like that is a mistake that um, some churches make, right? They say, well, hey, like, yeah, we're called to love each other. We're called, you know, to be gracious to one another. That is true, okay? That is true. But we do have to draw lines, okay? We do have to draw lines. We see the apostles draw lines, and that's where we're going we're gonna to base our drawing of the lines based off what Scripture says, okay? So the first principle is that we must be charitable on issues of minor doctrine and practice, okay? If somebody believes they're a Christian or calls themselves a Christian, then generally speaking, we should be charitable with them on areas where we disagree theologically if it's a minor doctrine. Okay, this is a really important, okay? Romans 14 is the best chapter that really lays this out, so I'm gonna go into it a little bit here, okay? In Romans 14, Paul says this, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Okay, I love first of all how Paul's characterizing this. Because okay. <laughs> okay. he's gonna make it clear in this chapter that he's on the side of you, know, you can eat meat. All right? And by the way, what this is probably referring to is that you know, the meat that was sold in the market okay, in Paul's day, some of it was devoted to idols. Okay? Some of it was devoted to idols. And so there were people teaching that you should basically not eat meat because you don't know. Some of it might be devoted to idols, right? And Paul is saying, no, if your faith is strong, those things don't matter, right? Don't worry about that, brush that off. You know, you can eat meat, okay? So he's characterizing, he's making it clear where he stands, and he makes it explicit later on this chapter, okay? But he's making it clear where he stands, okay? He stands inside of like, you can eat meat, Theologically, it's fine, okay? And he describes those that disagree with him, that no, you can't eat meat. These people, he says their faith is weak, okay? (laughs) I I love how he characterizes this, but he's gonna go on, okay? The one who eats everything, that's him, right, must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Okay, so this is his, the, the first example that he gives. Okay, he gives us another example. One person considers one day more sacred than another. An- another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And it goes down to verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. This is what he's talking about, right? I eat meat because I know it's not unclean. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Okay? Hear what Paul is saying here. He's saying, like, look, I disagree with these guys that are teaching you can't eat meat sold in the market. I disagree. I think they're wrong. And and I, and I think their faith is weak. <laughs> okay, that's what he's saying, Okay. But for them, they're doing it to be faithful to God. I understand their motivation. Their motivation is they're trying to be faithful to the Lord. Therefore, I'm not gonna be a stumbling block in them and I'm gonna honor their devotion. Their devotion is they're trying to be faithful to the Lord. This is so important because so many believers disagree about things. And then they jump into a place of judgment where they go, it's because they don't really love the Bible like I do, right? Or it's because they're so immature like I'm not, right? Or, you know, there's like a million different reasons, okay? And 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 look, to some degree, those are right, okay? To some degree, those are right. There's a reason, you know, there are reasons why we're wrong about certain doctrines, okay? But what Paul is doing is he's he's saying, but look, what's the underlying reason why they're doing it? Are they doing it because they're trying to please the Lord? And he says, Yes. That's why they're doing it, okay? In these cases, these people are keeping this day holy because they're trying to please the Lord in it. Therefore, I should honor that desire that they have, and I should not judge them and put a stumbling block, okay? Let me just say, this is is so incredibly important. If I could say this to the American church, right? Look, I'm very theologically opinionated, all right? I have a lot of opinions, okay? I think Calvinism is dumb. (laughs) okay but because of what paul says here and other passages of scripture i understand that most calvinists are really trying to honor the lord through their reading of scripture they're they're genuinely trying to okay so even though i think their faith is weak (laughs) okay i'm going to honor that devotion and i'm going to honor them as brothers and sisters okay and this is really important okay that we honor those that we differ with on minor issues, okay? We honor them and we love them, right? And we treat them as as important brothers and sisters that are valuable and beloved by God, all right? And I just think, man, if the church would do this, because the way it is, especially right now in Protestantism, okay, as Protestants, man, we split over every minor doctrine, over every minor difference in practice, right? We start to judge other churches and other believers and other ministries, right? Oh man, they don't pray loud. That's because man, they have they have weak faith. <laughs> you know, or like, or those guys pray so loud It's because they're always trying to show off, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, we're like judging ourselves. We're judging each other over all these minor things. And what we should really try to discern is, are they are they trying to please the Lord in this? Okay. And by the way, I think that there are times where we can discern they're not trying to please the Lord with this. They're doing this for some other motivation. Okay. I do think there are times like that. But generally speaking, okay, if we see another Christian and they're they're devout, they're really trying to follow the Lord, then we should give them a lot of grace in the areas where they differ from us theologically and in practice. Okay, we really should give them grace. All right, and that is, um, the the point of Romans fourteen. Okay, and that's the point of First Corinthians twelve. All right, if they're gifted differently than us, and there's lots of cases where this can come up. Right, like I always, you know, I when I pastor, I always tell. You know, my people, I suck at evangelism, all right? <laughs> okay? I don't want to suck. I want to be great at it. I'm just terrible at it, all right? It's an area where I am weak personally, okay? And what that means is because I'm weak in evangelism, I'm not good at training and discipling others to be strong in evangelism, right? Like, I can't impart what I don't have, all Right? By the way, I still try to, <laughs> okay? I still try to, but it's not an area of strength for me. So, uh, my point is this. There are churches that are much stronger at evangelism than the churches that I lead tend to be, okay? What can happen is, it it can be very tempting for me to be like, dude, those guys, they have such shallow prayer lives, right? Because they don't pray like we do, right? Or, you know, they have, you know, they're so weak at hearing the voice of the Lord because they don't know prophecy, or they're theologically not deep, or, you know, there's like a million ways that they might be weaker than our ministry in certain things. Okay, but my job as a Christian, and as a leader, is to honor their strengths. Okay, is to honor their strengths. And, and this is so important, right, to honor the strengths and give grace to the weaknesses of other believers, right? I think if, if we honestly examine what ministries are strong in, most ministries have real strengths, and most leaders have real strengths, okay, um, in that they're better at those things than we are okay, because we're all gifted in different ways, okay, and the way it's supposed to work is we're supposed to be thankful that they're strong in areas where we're weak, and then we're supposed to, you know, honor them and empower them in it and receive from them. The The problem is we're so insecure as a church, right, that we end up competing, <laughs> we end up competing, and then, um, you know, getting jealous or judging or all this kind of stuff, okay, um, but really, we should be charitable minor man, on, on minor matters. And then we should um, honor churches that emphasize different biblical truths than we do. Okay, as much as possible. Alright, so that's number one. Okay, so when we're talking about drawing lines, that's the first principle. Let's be charitable on minor matters, okay? Now, the, the second thing is that we do have to draw lines when it comes to heretical doctrine, okay? So, I tend to recommend the Apostles' Creed as a barometer of heretical doctrine, okay? I don't think it's the perfect barometer, okay? But I do think it's a very useful one. Unfortunately, it's not like there's a part of the Bible, right, where Paul lays out these are the major doctrines and then these are the minor doctrines, okay? Like, it doesn't lay it out like that. So we have to infer through the context of what they're saying, which are major and which are minor, okay? Um, But a lot of effort was put into the early church to do that, all right? And the Apostles' Creed is one of those creeds that was developed to identify what was considered heretical belief versus Orthodox belief, okay? So my general rule of thumb is if another believer can affirm the Apostles' Creed, then I will generally consider them an Orthodox believer, Okay. Um, I already mentioned, I don't think this is perfect, okay, because there are aspects of the Apostles' Creed that some believers actually disagree with, and I'll talk a little about those. So, first of all, if you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, let me recite it really briefly here, okay? It says this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the the Father Almighty. And from there he, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen, okay, so that is, this is one of the earliest creeds that we have in Christendom. It was, um, you know, people argue that it was, it was really developed in, in the second century, okay, it was more codified in the fourth century, um, but this is really one of the oldest creeds that we have, um, and it was originally developed to um, arm the church against some of the heresies that developed in the early church, specifically like Gnosticism and some of these things, okay, okay. Um, now I mentioned that some Christians will take exception with some aspects of the Creed. Specifically, there's two parts that I um, put an asterisk next next to here, and that's the um, the part where Jesus descended into hell. Okay, there are Christians that don't believe that he descended into hell, and so you know they understand that he descended. The Bible does say he descended, but they would read that more as he descended to Earth, right, when he was incarnated. Um, so. I don't necessarily think if you don't believe that he descended to hell, that that's heretical. I, I don't think that, right? That's why I say that this is I don't think this is a perfect creed, um, but I think it's pretty good overall, okay? And the second one is the Holy Catholic Church, right? I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic just really means universal. So essentially what you're saying is that you believe the church is not just the people at your local church, right? The church includes all of the Christians from all around the world that put their faith in Christ and believe these things, okay? And so, um, you know, some people will change that word to be universal, the holy universal church, right? Just because, you know, some people are don't want to be misunderstood to think that they they believe only Catholics are saved, <laughs> okay, right? Okay, so I think Apostles' Creed is a good basic barometer on Orthodox theology. In particular, when we're talking about Orthodox theology, we're talking about the authority of Scripture— Okay? We're talking about the, the who Jesus is. Okay, this is where most cults will start to change things. Okay? Specifically, is Jesus fully man, fully God, and the only way to salvation. Alright? I think those are three important doctrines that if somebody differs on one of those, they say, Hey, you know, Jesus wasn't actually ever a man. He's he was always God. He's not really a man. I think that's a heretical belief. If they say Jesus, you know, was just a man, he was never God, or he became God, I also think that's heretical doctrine. Um, Or if they say Jesus is one way to salvation, I think that's heretical doctrine, right? So on some of those issues, I think we need to draw a line and say, hey, they're not Christian. Even though they say they're Christian, I do not consider them a brother or sister, okay? So that is... um, the first place where we draw lines in the body of christ okay over the issues of orthodox doctrine now on a personal on a personal level okay i believe that there are catholics that are saved i believe there are eastern orthodox christians that are saved okay i personally do not consider myself a catholic or eastern orthodox okay um, but i believe that there's many true christians now i don't know what the percentage is Okay, because it, it works the same way. Like, I believe many people who are Protestant are not saved. Okay, so many people in our churches that would consider themselves Protestant Christians, I would say, based off of the second place where we're going to draw a line, so not the doctrine issue, but off of the second issue, I would say they're not saved. So what I'm getting at is, uh, you know, I don't think that only Protestants are saved. Okay, I don't think that only Protestant doctrine is Orthodox doctrine. I believe many Catholics are also saved. Okay, and many Eastern Orthodox Christians are also saved. Okay. All right. Now the second area where I think we need to draw lines is preaching grace as a license for sin. Okay? Meaning if we continue to sin, there no longer remains a propitiation for sin. There's no longer a sacrifice for sin. This is that's Hebrews ten. Okay. If we come to the knowledge of truth, but we continue to sin, and I always make a distinction between practicing sin and struggling with sin, okay. Every Christian struggles with sin, right? Like you know, if I if I get really jealous and I you know speak ill of somebody, that's me f- struggling and falling into sin, falling into temptation. Then what I need to do is I need to repent, right? What I what I don't do is I don't go, you know what? Everybody gets jealous and it's fine, it's a good thing. You know, I don't consider, I no longer consider it sinful, and I'm just going to keep practicing it, okay? Uh, yeah, I don't think if you commit, if you continue to practice sin, and, and I do believe that there's a there's an aspect of major versus minor sin here. Okay, um, I don't know. It, it would be hard for me to delineate honestly between what is considered major or minor. But you know, if you're somebody who murders somebody and you're like, oh, I repented, and then you murder somebody tomorrow, and then it's like, oh, and then you repent, and then you murder a third person. It's hard for me to think you're a Christian, okay? Even though yeah, you're repenting every time, but that's a major sin. You know, <laughs> you know if there's real repentance there, I don't think you'd continue to do it. Does that does that make sense? So, I do think there's an aspect of major versus minor in this, all right? Um, but the general rule of thumb is if you're practicing versus struggling with sin. Okay? If you're practicing versus struggling with sin. Okay? And that's because the Bible, I think, makes a distinction on this, all right? So Jude 4 and Second Peter 2 are both passages about false teachers, and they both talk about this idea of how false teachers preach grace as a license for sin. So here's Jude, verse four. It says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Okay? So there's that combination where they preach grace as a license for sin. They, they, they say God's grace is so great, it's okay if you sin. Sin as much as you want. Something like that. Okay? It's all paid for by the blood. Okay? And they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And what you see is that that combination is, is there also in Second Peter 2. Okay, so here's a snippet from 2 Peter 2. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And then later on in verse 18, it says, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, okay? So that that combination, we see it again. And obviously, there's a lot of similarities between 2 Peter 2 and Jude 4, verse 4, okay? Um, this idea of they deny Christ, their only sovereign Lord, and then they... Practice sin, and they encourage others to also. Right? Those are the the commonalities of these false teachers. Okay, and the the other big example we have is from First Corinthians chapter five. Okay, in First Corinthians chapter five, we have uh, this episode where a man is sleeping with his mother-in-law, and Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for showing grace to him. And what he says is, "What you should have done." is put him out of the church. Hand him over to Satan is the language that he uses, all right? You know, you're excommunicate him. That's what you should have done. Why? Because he's not repentant about this sin. He's committing a major sin and and Paul does clarify that that is major, right? He 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 says in the passage this is sin not even committed amongst the Gentiles, meaning it's like this is this is especially bad, like and everybody should know this is bad. Right? And um and then he says, hand them over to Satan. And then he says, you should not fellowship with any, any person who claims to be a believer and yet practices sin like this. Okay? And he makes that really clear. All right? That's 1 Corinthians 5. Okay? So that's why on that basis, I think it's wise to draw lines there. If somebody claims to be a believer but practices sin, I think they should be put out, put out of the church and we should not fellowship with those people. Okay, and that's a pretty that's a pretty big difference. But we have to make a distinction. These people are not Christian, even though they claim to be Christian. They're not, okay. And um, you know, in in our day and age, I would put that line as if somebody is gay, okay? Because being uh, practicing homosexuality is sinful according to the scriptures, and that's why I have lots of, of mercy and grace for somebody who struggles, a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction okay? I I think that's fine, right? I think a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction is fine because they're recognizing that it's sinful, and they're not entering into a sinful state. They're struggling with their sin. They're wrestling with their sin. Even if they fall into sin, if they repent, they can get back up, no problem, okay? But somebody who is is a quote-unquote a gay Christian who's married, that's not struggling with sin, okay? You're not struggling with sin. You are married, all right? It's the same way that I feel about I'm somebody who's living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're not married, but they're living together. Right, you're not struggling with sin. You're living together, right? Like, uh, no, thats not. you're not struggling. You're practicing sin. Okay, that's the sin of fornication. If you're living with somebody that you're not married to and you're sleeping together daily, you're living in a state of sin, right? That person should be put outside of the church, even if their doctrine's totally correct, okay? Even if they, 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 uh, they know the Apostles' Creed and they recite it, they're not Christian, according to this standard. So we should be drawing lines and refusing to fellowship with them if they continue to claim that they're believers. All right, I think if the church actually practiced this, then we'd have way less compromise in the church. I think one of the big problems is that as a church, many churches will not practice church discipline. And so what happens you have lots of people coming to the church that really are not Christian, um, but they influence the church to compromise uh, the standards, the biblical standards that we're supposed to have, okay? So that's, those are the places where I draw the lines. I think that's the wise place to draw the lines. So to, to clarify, how do we draw those lines? We give grace for minor issues of doctrine and practice so long as we feel like we can see that they're genuinely trying to obey the Lord. They have real faith. There's real heart devotion to Jesus there. Okay? And they might be mistaken in some way, or they might, you know, we might disagree with one of the ways that they do it, but we can tell that their their faith is, is genuine or real, they're devout. Okay? That person we should have grace on, we should have full fellowship with them, we should honor them. Right? All that kind of stuff. Versus, where we draw lines are if somebody is teaching heretical doctrine, they say, hey, Jesus was never man, or he was never God, all right? And, or he's just one way of salvation, or some, something like that. Okay then I think we should say, that, hey, they're not a Christian. This is more of a cult, okay? Um, and the second way is if they're practicing sin or they're teaching others that you can practice sin, then that would be, I think, a false teacher, okay? Somebody who preaches that you can practice sin, and but you're fully saved and don't worry, God's grace is, is enough, all that kind of stuff, okay? I think that is false teaching it's, it's insofar as I understand these Bible passages, okay? All right, I hope that all makes sense. Um, we will run into these things. My heart is this: even if you're wronged, right, by other believers, even if hey you say, hey, I'm going to stand up for life, I'm going to stand up for the unborn, or I'm going to say that homosexuality is wrong, or any of these other, you know, really controversial topics that we're, we've been talking about in this series, and you say that, and then you have another person who claims to be a Christian come along, and you know, start to bash you, or you know, hit back at you, or whatever it might be. My encouragement would be try to discern, okay, the place from which they're doing it, okay? If they're genuine believers and it's an issue of just disagreement, then just try to lovingly disagree in public. And I do this all the time, right, as a leader. I say, hey, you know, I I, I love you, but I think you're wrong here, and this is why. And I'm going to continue to treat them with honor, even though I, I will disagree with them at times. And I think that's okay. Public disagreement is not disunity, okay? Public disagreement is not disunity. That's going to happen sometimes, all right? But if I start to slander them and all this kind of stuff, then it can be disunity if they are truly believers, right? So our job is really trying to discern whether they're believers, and I think this is going to be one of the ways that we're judged at the Judgment Day. You know, how did we treat other members of the family of God? Okay, and if they're if they're not believers, um, you know, if they if they claim to be believers, but you discern that they're not believers, personally, I just would not interact with them. Okay, I, I try not to fellowship with those people. Okay, um, because that is a group that they cause mass confusion. All right, they should it, they should understand that they are not saved. They should have pastors, teach on them. I'm sorry, you're not saved. You might believe you're saved, but you're not. You're not a Christian. Um, but because of the widespread deception and confusion on this issue, um, that can be that can be really tough for people to understand, okay? All right, I hope that's ha- helpful. And my heart and my desire is that we as a church would grow more in, in true unity, that God would unify the body of Christ um, because we do need an outpouring of the Spirit. We need a revival. And that is that continues to be my hope. I am hopeful that the Lord is going to bring a greater revival than we've ever seen before. Um, we've seen some amazing revivals throughout history. I'm hoping for a revival that is greater than all of them. Okay? And that is my hope. And I hope that for you, that you will be part of it. All right. God bless.